Welcome to another edition of Thinking Like a Lawyer. I'm Joe Patrice from Above the Law. I'm joined by my esteemed colleagues. That was Catherine Bino who piped up already. We also have Chris Williams here who has not yet piped up. Now he has. And now we are uh, breaking down some of the big stories in the legal industry of the week that was, as we usually do on this show. Yeah. But as we also usually do on this show, we begin by uh, having a little bit of uh, personality time by having some small talk. Which goes, uh, which is where we would play a trumpet sound effect, but for some reason, I'm not, those aren't working for me right now. I don't know why. Oh, that's okay. We still like it. <laughs> yeah. I don't you know. You're completely distraught, uh, Catherine. <laughs> I don't know if you'll be able to get through it, honestly. Uh, I don't know about the rest of you, but uh, I spent the weekend uh, putting up Christmas decorations and watching live streams from Argentina, which, if you know, you know what I'm talking about. Um, okay, no. Yeah, it, I, I know and no. <laughs> uh, Taylor Swift's concert, uh, her Eros tour went to Argentina and her boyfriend, Travis Kelsey, made an appearance and it was really adorable and there were lots of good moments that I'm sure neither of you actually care about, but you should know that nope. it's spending, uh, taking up way too much of my brain space and uh, I don't think I'm Correct. alone. I'm I'm confident that I'm not the only person uh, who's listening to this podcast, who cares about the could-not-be-sweeter romance between Taylor and Travis. And yep, speaking on Joe's are. behalf here, I just want to say shame to all of you who are also in Catherine's position. <laughs> I mean, come on. It is it is a really cute love story playing out in front of all of us. Why, why don't you care? That's a better question. Oh, some dude. Mm. It looks like some dude. Sure, because he is a dude, you know? I mean, he it's looks some- like what he is. It's just some guy. Any any other guy. I, I didn't know about the, I didn't know about the dude before he was dating Taylor. I never really cared for him. I'm not going to uh, magically fairness, care because he's you know. Joe Alwyn was significantly less famous than Travis Kelsey. But yeah. so look, they're all whatever. They it's fine. They Travis Kelsey seems like in, enjoyable, uh, but like I just can't waste any bandwidth on somebody else's relationship. Period. Uh, let alone people I don't actually know. Well, it's, said, like, uh, it's like a yeah. it's like a romance novel, like in real life, like playing out for all of us. I was talking to some friends of mine, and we were like, "Define us, like yeah, Amer- like the world, like it's playing out in front of the world. No. Everyone can see it. No, no, no. this is the no. same. It would have been the same amount of fanfare if she would have got hooked up with some dude from a Seven Eleven counter. Like he's just some dude. Like he's he's, he's a guy. Uh, uh, that, you only care because it's her. He's he. That's you know, probably I mean, unfair. So I mean, people that work at 7-Eleven. He did have no, his own dating no, television show before this. Just yes. FYI. People cared about his relationships he, before this, too. He's yeah. extraordinarily famous. However, uh, yeah, like it, it, it's more that I just cannot begin to care about other people's relationships. Uh, and good so, for you. Do you want a gold star for that? Or yes, I actually. do. Okay, okay. I, I do. And, and frankly, I think I have several of them. Uh, <laughs> because... Most most of the world does reward not getting involved in this. Anyway, secondly, I'm gonna I'm gonna transition a little bit to a small talk topic that is also quasi legal, 
Uh, so we can have kind of a fun law school exam sort of chat here. Uh, That's just the podcast. I was, you are I not was, good at, at small talk. You do this all the time, Joe. You yeah. hijack small talk for legal talk. Yeah. It's not the Speaking same. of small I'm, talk, Kravath partners. No, like. Kravath? <laughs> Kravath. Kravath. I know. I, I know. I am deeply disappointed to have learned that Warner Brothers, which is a movie studio run by people who are incredibly incompetent at everything they do, has <laughs> taken a fully made war, uh, fully made Wiley e. Coyote movie and shelved it in order to claim a tax write-off, which is mm. something they've done already. They did that to a fully finished Batgirl movie, and I think maybe some other movie too. It's a continuing plague on tax law that these companies can make movies and then get feel they get more value out of than vaulting them and letting no one ever see the movie than trying to let people see the movie uh, because our tax law is tilted in such a way that it rewards them more for making things that then go away and are never released than put out, which is one, a tax law problem. I would also say another thing that's been coming out of this story that's kind of legal issue is that I've noticed that some of the crew have tried to put up little clips of things that they worked on uh, before they all of their hard work was destroyed this way. And Warner Brothers has been filing copyright claims to take it down. It, <laughs> for stuff that they refused to release? For stuff they refused to release. I feel like you have to, I, I know it's not a trademark situation. Copyright is not the same as trademark, but it feels like you should be actively trying to exploit the work to have your right <laughs> exist in it. Once you stop trying to exploit the work, I feel like you don't uh, get to claim that anymore. Yeah, but I mean, shouldn't. fundamentally, it, that you'd have to go to court, right, to have any of these rights vindicated, whereas most platforms just pull the, any if there's a copyright yeah. claim, they just pull it, and it doesn't matter whether or not there's actually a valid legal claim there or not, right? They just pull it. Right. Because it's easier. Well, yeah, and then, and in copyright, you don't have to actually put your stuff out for it sure. to be protected copyright. It's just it's just a shame, like as opposed to trademark where you have to be sure. engaged in using it. But it's a real shame that all these people who've devoted all this work to building a movie. But although one person on social media did put it well that uh, – Going to all the tr Wiley Coyote going to all the trouble to make a full length movie and then having it never see the light of day is incredibly <laughs> on brand for Wiley Coyote. That is incredibly apropos. <laughs> yeah, I will say yeah. I just imagine a full length Wiley Coyote movie is just some dude in front of a green screen for half an hour to to ninety minutes. Well, so it's it's uh it's apparently an animation live action hybrid. John Cena was involved. It's about the. It's actually also legal. John the, Cena was involved. Of course, we can't see it. <laughs> yeah, the impetus for the, the the title of the movie is Coyote versus Acme. It's about a about the legal case of Wiley going going after Acme for all of the harm that he's suffered at their hands. So I mean, that sounds really, like a slam dunk, frankly. It it yeah. it would have been a great legal movie too, and we're not seeing it. So really big laws keeping us from it, right? Because um, some plaintiff's firm was on top of that. <laughs> well, yeah, we, we need to, yeah, that's right. That's right. They're, it's big law trying to prevent us from learning right. about product liability law. <laughs> All right. Well, Chris, do you have anything to? Uh, no, I just, I just want to reiterate that John Cena, you can't see me joke was hilarious. <laughs> yeah. All right. So we are going to move on to the topics of the day. Uh, what is the most important topic of the day? Money, 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 money. 
Yeah, it's all yeah, about the money yeah, yeah, yeah. these days. Uh, last week, pretty early in the year, uh, first week of November, which is a much earlier than we typically see year-end bonus announcements, um, Millbank announced their bonuses uh, on the same scale as last year's bonuses. That is not the story. That is, <laughs> that is at best the, the the addition, the little subscript to what happened. Because in in addition to announcing bonuses, Millbank also decided to announce raises. 10K raises for every class year, um, bringing the first year starting salary. Remember, starting salary, you, you may have never had a real a job before in your whole good goddamn life, and you start at a big law firm with $225,000 plus bonuses. Plus bonuses. It's a lot of money for someone who potentially has never actually worked. But you know, the really interesting thing, so that, that is interesting, right? It was announced, we've talked on the podcast before this year about, you know, it's a weird time in big law. It's not like everyone's doing well. So of course there are bonuses or raises or whatever, you know, some firms apparently are doing well, but there've been layoffs. There've been fry, uh, uh, hiring freezes. There've been, there've been also, there've been delays in starting um, at big law firms. There've been all sorts of sort of indicators that maybe not everything is doing great in the industry. And, Millbanks out here being like, no, 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 we're good. We're good. We're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna raise the salaries. So far, we've we're about a little less than a week since the announcements. And thus far, no firm has announced a match as of this recording. Yeah. That is pretty unique. This this was huge news, obviously. Let's let's break it down into a couple of different buckets. Uh, mm-hmm. because I think you're you're raising a lot of issues. Uh, sure. one is is this a can this be construed as a power move on Millbank's part to say, hey, some people in the industry are laying folks off, some people are hemming and hawing about what they you know about the market. We want to prove that we're tough and strong. I think so. I think I think Millbank, as the firm that made the move too, is also a really interesting one. The last couple of raises, Millbank was the first actor. They're the ones who got the ball rolling. In those previous instances, other firms came over the top and said, okay, actually, we're going to increase it more than Millbank did, maybe only for some classes, whatever it was. But Millbank did proceeded to match whatever the new industry-wide standard was, clearly. But uh, I think that their leadership uh, appears to want to be on the forefront of salary information. Whether that means that they're, you know, have to come back out and have a second round of raises, they don't care. That doesn't bother them. Yeah. It doesn't embarrass them in any way. But they're the ones who get the ball rolling. Um, and I think that 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 in and of itself is a power move. And I think particularly in an in a year when not everyone is doing as well as they are, you know, the fact that they have this extra profit and want to share it with their associates rather than just take it home as they're in in their profits per partner numbers is telling. See, and I see it as slightly, it it is definitely power move in that they're, you know, they're doing something. I also though, of, you mentioned previous times Millbank has triggered a round of raises. And I will say one of those times in the past they were pretty upfront that it wasn't really that they were trying to do a raise. They just felt that inflation had been what it was and that a cost of living adjustment was necessary. And they felt that just raising things by 10 grand was not an attempt to like undermine the market, but just an effort to be like, hey, cost of living, this is what's going on. Which is why the size of this particular bonus, or not bonus, uh, a comp change, I read the same way. I think that they just said, especially after we heard, like inflation appears to be under control now, but we did 
we we have to admit we did have a run last year of a of some pretty hefty inflation and millbanks just responding to that i think that it's in some ways i think it's less of a oh they're trying to like get ahead of the market and more just like they recognize that things cost more now uh and i actually ran the numbers on this raise based on where we were two or three years ago to today. And frankly, it's slightly under what the cost of living adjustment would be if you tracked inflation exactly since the last raise. So I I don't know. I see this as, I mean, great for them. Yes, it's a power move to the extent that other people are thinking of cutting back. But also, I think what's really admirable is that it isn't a massive increase in salary. I think they just recognize that people people need more money now because the cost of living's gone up. Well, I mean a couple of things. I think first of all, the that might be true that inflation sort of was runaway over the last year or so. But the other thing is that it's not the previous time when when Milbank kind of was like, oh, I think this is mostly just inflation, et cetera. There had been a bit of a gap between the last set of raises uh, and the current and, and those raises, right? So it had been like maybe three or four years or something like that. Um, and so then they so like, I, we need to make this sort of cost of living adjustment. We had raises last year. We had raises in 2022. We had raises in 2021. So the notion that somehow there's a problem and there's an inflationary problem in the industry, I'm not sure that that is as true as 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 it might be. The other thing to note is that oh, well, let me just say, like we did at one point last year, we were tracking like an eight percent inflation rate sure. on a monthly basis. Sure. Like it, I, I did, said, I said inflation was crazy. Matter. Inflation was yeah. crazy last year, but I don't think yeah. most people are not getting those kind of inflationary in a one year turnaround. Most industries are not doing that, for good or for bad. They're not. So, you know, take that for what it is. The other thing to note is that I think that we've heard a lot of murmurings. Obviously, I don't know Milbank's client mix specifically, but clients are putting out a lot of like, ooh, we don't want these big increases because last year, yeah, I mean, last year there was a big increase across the industry um, in terms of what their billable rates were in big law, um, and they're expected to raise them again in 2024. Uh, and we get, you know, you hear a lot of perhaps natural grumbling from their clients saying like this is too much, et cetera, et cetera. But despite the fact that that might or maybe not be true, that they may be getting pushback from clients, or at least you know that's that kind of buzz that's going around. Millbank is still willing to willing to do it, whether you know whether that means that they are getting the increased money from their clients or they don't care about it or or who knows what exactly going on behind the scenes. We don't have access to all of their sort of detailed numbers. But it says a lot about, I think, a firm that's willing to put their associates ahead of other concerns. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm actually a little shocked that people aren't jumping on quicker, uh, mm. given the re- relatively modest nature of this, given that it does kind of track inflation. And like, I actually just crunched while we were chatting, I crunched a little bit more. You know, I, I heard, hear from people who are a little bit older, like, wow, we this would have been great to get this money back then. And I, I just ran through from when I started as an associate my first year. If my set starting salary had tracked inflation, it would be 217 a year now. So really, this isn't all that far off of where, where the market, ha- where the economy has gone over all these years. So I don't really see it as a wild outlier. I'm, obviously, clients are going to complain because that's what clients do. Sure. And they do that right up until they need to get something done. And like, look, they're, if they don't want to pay those rates, there are plenty of law firms that offer very competent legal services who charge less. But nobody gets fired for hiring Cravath, you know? And so ultimately, when it's a 
bet the company matter, they're going to end up paying those rates anyway. And I don't know. I just, I'm tired of that. But I do kind of also want to talk about the fact that no one is matched. You know, we're yeah. almost a week later, no one has matched. Not a, not a boutique, um, which sometimes, you know, they're yeah. smaller, so they have more flexibility. They have a better sense of their financials. They're able to sort of make these moves quickly. Not a big law firm. No one has matched. I find that very, very interesting. I think that there will be matches. I don't think that this will yeah. last for forever. I, I, I Perhaps even by the time this is published, there'll be some matches. But the, usually, historically, you know, I've, I've been around for quite a few rounds of raises at Above the Law. And what we tend to see is within the same day, we usually have at least one or two firms matching. Uh, within the first the first Friday after the announcement, Friday is a very popular day to announce bonus or raise news. Um, we usually hear something on that Friday after. We've heard nothing uh, the Friday after. Yeah. I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means. Yeah. Maybe some players are thinking about coming over the top of these numbers. That's certainly a possibility. One that's getting a lot of play on uh, on Reddit and other sort of, and Fishbowl and other sort of <laughs> uh, message board services, which, you know, makes some sense. Everyone would love, <laughs> associates would love there to be more races, of course. I don't know how realistic that is. We'll see. And it's also interesting to think about who will be the firm that either is the first match or comes over the top. Obviously, historically, uh, Cravath and Davis Polk are both firms that have led the sort of top of the market charge. Um, neither of them have made any any murmuring so far about what they're all going to do. And I don't think we'll, we'll know where the top of the market will settle until they've announced something. Calidus AI cleverly supports you by suggesting relevant law to address your complex issues. Put in simple questions or longer fact patterns, then Calidus asks you to confirm if points are salient before proceeding. Use Calidus to check if you found all the key concepts, cases, and statutes. Calidus turns that into a high-quality, customer-ready document. Handle complexity confidently with Legal's most advanced AI platform. Get $90 off your first two months. Use promo code Joe at CalidusAI.com. That's C-A-L-L-I-D-U-S-A-I.com. Hey, Guy, what's up? Just having some lunch, Conrad. Hey, Guy, do you see that billboard out there? Oh, you mean that guy out there in the gray suit? Yeah, the gray suit guy. Order up. There's uh, all those beautiful, rich, leather-bound books in the background. That is exactly the one. That's J.D. McGuffin at Law. He'll fight for you! I bet you he has got so many years of experience. Like decades and decades. And I bet, Guy, I bet he even went to a law school. Are you a lawyer? Do you suffer from dull marketing and a lack of positioning in a crowded legal marketplace? Sit down with Guy and Conrad for Lunch Hour Legal Marketing on the Legal Talk Network. Available wherever podcasts are found. Okay, we're back. Let's talk about Cravath because at, at the exact same time that we got raises uh, in the industry, we also had another kind of milestone moment for the legal industry coming mm -hmm. from Cravath. Right. Um, Cravath finally cracked on non-equity partnerships and um, they introduced a salary partner tier, which is kind of weird mm -hmm. if you know the, how partners generally work. They're the thing because they have the equity. <laughs> so like... Partners without equity is like a drivers without licenses or something. <laughs> or licenses without yeah. drivers, yeah. Licenses yeah. without drivers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that the industry is moving increasingly towards having that second tier of partnership. 
you know, I, Cravath is one of the holdouts, largely because they created the Cravath model, right? Which was that it was lockstep, single tier partnership. And that was, that was their, that was their jam. That's what they were known for. And it's, it is very noteworthy that Cravath has decided to move over to this income tier of partnership, joining many, many other big law firms. I think last year, they were only like 12 or maybe 13 uh, big law firms in the AMLA 100 that were in a single tier of part of equity uh, partnership, like only equity partners. And obviously this year will be less than that. We'll see. Yeah, it is definitely the way the industry is going. Uh, it It's a little problematic. I mean, there used to always be a income partner tier and we called it special counsel and that was what they did. The problem with moving towards this income partner model and calling it a partner when it's not really a partner uh, has been, you know, there have been studies looking at this and it's unfortunately used a lot of time as a grounds to stymie the careers of women and and other, other minority attorneys who are senior, but they don't, the firm doesn't want to, the firm wants all the benefit from being able to say that they have a diverse group of partners, but they want to share none of the actual money with them. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so those folks end up in this tier where they get to be marketed as partners without actually being partners. That is a real problem. Not saying that Cravath or anybody in specific is is looking to do that, but that is the impact that this has had. Whether it's been intentional or kind of an implicit move on a lot of people's parts is, you know, kind of beside the point. Has that been basis for any discrimination lawsuits that you know of? No, no one's like sued over any of this, uh, partially because, you know, it's still a good job to be an mm. income partner. Uh, and so nobody wants to get rid of it. But yeah, this is, be- this is a real, a real issue. And, and they also, you know, they have all sorts of excuses for this. Uh, oh, women, they, they have kids. And so they aren't, they, they aren't in a position to be an equity partner, but they can be an income partner. Like all of these sorts of excuses are how this gets institutionalized. I also think there's some level to which this is a, people not willing to, the older generation not willing to relinquish power a little bit. Uh, There's a lot of, well, we're here, we just don't think this next crop is as good as we were, which is almost certainly not true. Uh, They are almost certainly as good, if not better, than you all were, but everyone kind of views their generation as though they had it more together than the next one. That used to be something that because there was a single tier, people had to get over it. Now there's more of an opportunity to not do that. Uh, and I think that's going to lead to a troubling situation, which uh, it, it'll be great for the bottom line of those equity partners, but it's a troubling situation long-term because the leverage is going to get way out of hand. You're going to start having handfuls of equity partners with a huge tier of income partner and below. Yeah, this is also related to the issue of origination credit, though, too, right? And and we talk a lot about on the Jabot podcast because we talk about diversity and the law, but about origination credit and and income partners Mm -hmm. and about how sort of the combination of those two things has really led to a tier, uh, a lesser than tier uh, that I think is yeah. is really, is, it's it's noteworthy and it's happening. And also all these decisions are very um, firm specific. So it's not like, oh, industry-wide, we need to do the following to origination credit or we need to do the following to partnership because every firm, you know, has their own brand and it's all kind of done individualized. It's not kind of a standardized and it's also done behind closed doors. It's not really clear from the outside how origination credit 
is distributed for big institutional clients, partners that have been at the firm for 40, 50 years, how much and maybe aren't billing that much anymore, how much of the original creation are they still getting for those clients that they maybe inherited from some other old white guy? You know, and and I think that the way that these things get talked about is very firm to firm specific, um, but it is absolutely something we keep on seeing across the industry. Yeah, and you know, like it, it not only were there the history of this to be a one-tiered partnership, but going back even further, it used to be that more firms adopted kind of a lockstep partnership compensation, which everyone was a, for lack of a better word, partner in the endeavor. Uh, and when you're an par- actual equal partner in the endeavor, you know, origination credit doesn't doesn't become as much of a deal. Everyone's working together. Everyone shares in those spoils. As the industry has moved away from that, you're going to get these kind of uncomfortable situations where people are, you know, stabbing each other over origination credit, where they feel the need to create more tiers of lesser tiers of lawyers because that way they don't have to share with them. It's kind of a cancer in the industry uh, as a whole that I worry is making law a less awesome place to be. And and the other thing is that it's not like your striving ends at income level partnership. If there was, you know, and this is, I think, what sometimes counsel used to be, where it's like, oh, you know, you don't make partner your counsel, but there's an expectation that you have less hours or, you know, you're not billing as much or, you know, you have something else going on in your life. You don't you're not interested in billing 3000 hours a year. But that's not what's happening, I think, with income partners, because there's they're still holding out equity partnership. Right. There's still there's still some some more, some bigger, bolder grass ring at the end of an, of an undisclosed amount of years that you may be considered for. We'll see. And I think that that just kind of prolongs the rat race for a lot of folks. You know, it's uh, it's sad to see this development. It obviously is how the industry is going, but, uh, and I fear that that number of one-tier folks is going to be even smaller sooner rather than later, unless we do something. Uh, you know, it's it's good that, of course, the rankings like AMLAW like, has now carved out the PPP to have PPEP to like right. at least acknowledge that there aren't, uh, not every partner is a partner. Uh, but if we could all kind of linguistically agree. The folks with, with, the folks with uh, income tier actually like that, right? Because their PPEP number looks fantastic. It's this big number because they're waylaying most people in the income oh, yeah. partnership tier. So it works out for everybody. Yeah. I just, I, I'm just saying. Except like, if, if you want to, to be partner. <laughs> we just need to come to a linguistic sure. agreement that we not allow people to, uh, and you know, I mean, I'm sure income partners like using the word partner, but we probably shouldn't uh, because it obscures this problem. Yeah, but I think that in terms of client relationships, that's not going to stop. You know, clients want to yeah. feel like a partner is taking care of their matter. Right. And that's, yeah, that's why it falls upon people outside of that relationship, like the journalists, to try and uh, endeavor to not let that happen. Okay, uh, we already talked last week a little bit about Nixon Peabody and the issues going on there. Uh, Nick, it has gotten worse. Is everyone still a winner? Everyone is very much not winning over there these days. (laughs) Uh, Nixon Peabody, as we discussed last week, brought on uh, Donald Trump as a client, put aside whether or not that's a smart move for the sake of, you know, alienating the rest of your clients or anything like that, and 
definitely putting aside whether or not it's a good move to the extent that Donald Trump makes his lawyers issue some questionable arguments in the briefs <laughs> they write representing him, including in this particular brief downplaying January 6th as just a free speech thing. Putting all of that aside, the real issue for a lot of folks within the firm is that this happened behind the backs of the partners who, under normal procedure, would have gotten informed that the firm was trying to take on a new client and had the opportunity to weigh in on that, you know, back to what we were just talking about, partners being, you know, partners in the business. <laughs> and as it turns out, this was done behind their backs. They were not informed of this. The managing partner did it uh, with the help of the litigation chair who signed off on it. The litigation chair has apparently, I don't want to say apologized, but it's apparently, according to tipsters, has reached out to the other partners to say, we shouldn't have done this. This was an error that I signed off on this. The managing partner and the partner who represents Trump have been to date, seemingly full-on defiant, claiming that they get to make the decisions and they don't understand this was a confidential, we, we get to do this. They had a firm-wide meeting where basically the leadership told everybody to get over it. There was a, then we learned that there was a partners-only meeting that did take some questions uh, where at least one partner raised the, yeah, okay, well, you need to step down to the managing partner. Uh, all of you people involved in keeping this secret have to step down. That's the first call for that we've heard. <sighs> everyone's, yeah, everyone's not winning over at Nixon Peabody. Yeah, this just gets messier the more we hear about it. it it's yeah. kind of wild. Um, I'm not sure how much my opinion has changed um, from when we talked about this last week, except to say that People seem bigly mad at it, uh, the partners yeah. do, and, uh, <laughs> you know, fair. Fair. <laughs> and to do all this over a client that notoriously doesn't even pay his lawyers. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's a great segue. I, we did get a, I got a tip from a reader who was just like, Wait, put everything else aside, a phrase that I'm using a lot here, which that phrase comes out when there's a lot of bad things, when you're putting a <laughs> lot aside. To get to there. But a, one reader raised with me, like, what what kind of retainer situation do you think they got? Uh, because this is a guy who has traditionally stiffed his lawyers, uh, as Rudy Giuliani knows quite well. And uh, he's has a, a non-zero chance to be in jail in the relatively near future and may have all of his business endeavors uh, undone and taken away from him pretty quickly. Yeah, so his prospects did. don't look great. It doesn't seem like a, a it doesn't seem like a winning bet there. This is a fairly limited representation, but you know, motion practice can get expensive. So have they have they covered their bets here? I don't know. Uh, it it seems like if you're in the position to start doing sweetheart deals for somebody, you're probably in the position to be conned into. Oh, we don't need to take any money up front. We're fine. Like mm -hmm. you know, that's. That's worrying. Uh, hopefully, for the sake of all those other partners, there was a retainer agreement that secured a large chunk of money, uh, but we'll see. All right. Well, I think that's everything we had this week, uh, unless there's anything else. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, you should subscribe to the show and get episodes when they come out. You should leave reviews, write things give stars, that all helps. You should check out some other shows. Catherine's the host of The Jabot, which we talked about a little bit on this episode. I'm a guest on the Legal Talk Network Journalists Roundtable. 
every week. You should check out the Legal Talk Network's other range of shows. You should read Above the Law, so you read these and other stories before they come out. We're on social media. I'm at Joseph Patrice at Twitter, and I am Joe Patrice on other social media platforms. Catherine is Catherine One, the numeral one. Chris is Rights for Rent, the word rights, like with a pen and pencil, which is also the name of a club that some people might belong to. Ah, um, ah that yeah, was smooth. Yeah. That was smooth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With all of that said, uh, we will uh, check in with you all next week. Peace. Peace. If you're a lawyer running a solo or small firm and you're looking for other lawyers to talk through issues you're currently facing in your practice, join the Unbillable Hours Community Roundtable, a free virtual event on the third Thursday of every month. Lawyers from all over the country come together and meet with me, lawyer and law firm management consultant Christopher T. Anderson, to discuss best practices on topics such as marketing, client acquisition, hiring and firing, and time management. The conversation is free to join, but requires a simple reservation. The link to RSVP can be found on the Unbillable Hour page at LegalTalkNetwork.com. We'll see you there.